welcome back to the Girls Gone Canon podcast. I'm Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Liza Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr or at Drunk Aswaf, Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on Twitter. Hello, and I am Eliana, and you probably know me as Glass Table Girl on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and on the Maester Monthly podcast and as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Girls Gone Canon. Of Girls Gone Canon. I felt like that was as party girl as we could get I also was just making sure I had the right number. (laughs) (laughs) It is episode four. We have gone through three episodes so far. Uh, We are on chapters six and seven of Ned's chapters. We're so excited to be going through this. We'll we'll talk a little bit about what goes on in these chapters, but first, let's talk about some things that you all said. Yeah, we got a lot of emails and tweets to note this week. A couple fun things we'll get into, but first we did get an email from a lovely follower named Holly, a.k.a. Ladybird. Hello, a.k.a. Ladybird on Twitter. Yes, that's, that's her, right? Yes. Holly sent us a in-depth email touching on a lot of subjects, and we're going to just respond and talk about some of the things that she brought up. So first, Holly talks about some of the stuff we said regarding Cersei and Jamie when Bran was thrown out the window in his chapter and says that, uh, in response to pre- the previous episode, you stated that Cersei was the only quote-unquote good guy in the whole brand trying to be murdered twice fiasco. I have to lovingly disagree. If you look at the text when Bran discovers the twins having sex in the tower, he saw us, the woman said shrilly, and then when Jamie pulls Bran up and says, take my hand before you fall, Cersei responds, what are you doing, the woman demanded, and then the man looked over at the woman the things I do for love, he said with loathing. Cersei emphasized that Bran saw them and something needs to be done, then protests when Jamie keeps Bran from falling. Jamie knows Cersei wants him dead. That's why he says that iconic line with loathing. Later, when Cersei is protesting that he shouldn't have thrown Bran from the tower, it's classic Cersei manipulation. She's manipulating him into taking all the blame while she's come out as innocent. When has Cersei ever been honest with Jamie and not manipulated him? I always laugh too when people quote that Cersei loves her children. What loving thing has she ever done for her kids? We always have to remember the unreliable narrative. Sometimes characters say things that are in direct conflict with the evidence George R. R. Martin presents us with. So I have a couple of things to say in response to this and I I want to point out that we aren't saying necessarily that Cersei is the good guy at all um we're, we're not saying that um she's a good guy more of just that her response was the more measured and rational one and I would like to make the case that she didn't manipulate Jamie into throwing Bran out the window and that she actually had a vested interest in that not being the outcome so we learn more about this directly from Jamie's own 
point of view chapter about his motivations for throwing Bran out the window and about why Jamie made that decision. Cersei does protest to Jamie throwing Bran out the window. Um, and I think that actually comes out of her own sense of self-preservation, playing into that idea again of her narcissism. A flashy attempt at assassination isn't right for the situation because it leads to exactly all of the things that have happened in the story thus far. Like, you see that it's a very messy situation. It raises more suspicion among the Starks and continues to foster uh, that that ill will between the two families. Not that the Lannisters don't feel poorly towards the Starks. It's just that, you know, if someone's trying to fly under the radar, you don't do things that bring attention to yourselves. And talking to Bran about it would have been a just a more low-key solution. Jamie himself actually admits this in his own point of view chapter and says that it wasn't Cersei who manipulated, who manipulated him into it because Cersei is panicked afterwards. And Jamie himself states his, his motivations clearly when Brienne accuses him of throwing out an innocent boy out the window. Innocent? The wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Cersei. Their journey north had been one long torment, seeing her every day unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in the great creaking wheelhouse. Tyrion had done his best to keep him in a good humor, but it had not been enough. Jamie was upset and flung Bran out the window for spying on them and for interrupting the first chance that Jamie had in weeks to have sex with Cersei. When he speaks to Catelyn, he also gives the same sort of reason. He never once feels remorse for it, and it is his own doing. And you'll note even in this chapter that Jamie says, what tormented him was seeing Cersei every day unable to touch her and knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse. He says it to himself, it, this is his interiority. What upsets him even in that situation is that he knows that Robert, another man, gets to have Cersei. Not that Cersei was continued to endure marital rape from Robert or that she didn't even want him in her tent. So I don't think, I, I'm very sure that it wasn't Cersei's idea to throw Bran from the window. It was very much Jamie. While people raise the case and George R. R. Martin, you know, sometimes raises the question of what would you do to protect your children? We have evidence from Jamie's internal dialogue that part of his motivations were out of spite from Bran interrupting his lovemaking session and that he wasn't able to finish. So this isn't Cersei's doing at all. And I agree that it's not about her love for her children. And I want to point out that this is not the argument that we make at all in the previous episode. We very much agree that Cersei is in many ways textbook narcissist and that she sees her children as extensions of herself and that's where her affection for them comes up, comes from. So I, I don't want to conflate those two things because that's not the argument that we're making. Yeah, I would say that Cersei's love for her children only exists out of, like you said, self-preservation, which is one of her big traits. I mean, these children are born of her incest. If these kids get found out that they aren't hers, uh, they all go down. It's not just her kids going down. Oh no, my beloved children are dying. I also 
think it's important that not once in a single point of view from Jamie does he ever name Bran Stark. He calls him that Stark child. And he also does not ever feel remorse for pushing Bran out of that window. It's very, like Aliana went into, which I don't even think I would have hit on because I wouldn't have thought that deeply. Jamie just wanted to fuck is really what it boils down to. And I mean, especially when you got the blood pumping and it's not pumping in the right area, you probably would make some horrible decisions, like pushing a child out of a window, which, surprisingly, Cersei even says, wow, that was a little rash, you know, like, maybe we shouldn't have thrown the kid from the window. Jamie, do you want to finish on me now? Like, I don't... It was kind of one of those scenes. Holly did go on to ask us, I don't know if you've already decided what character to do next. I think Kat would be a great character to follow Ned. Uh, She's his spouse, but only has a few crossover moments with him. I'd like to analyze why Bran's her favorite child. Uh, And she goes on with a little bit of theorizing of her own because of Jon being uh, the bastard that Ned brought home. Another child calling his son. I won't go into that because I think we will have a lot of that to go into eventually. Mm -hmm. I will touch briefly that I am really excited to go into Kat. Unfortunately, she's not for a while. Eliana and I have been joking that we are stuck together for over four years now, so we will get to her. Uh, you guys are in for the long haul, hopefully. Kat is a very flawed character, and living, I mean, as a human, people give her so much crap, but you're living as someone that knows that your husband cheated on you and brought another kid home and treated it just like your kids uh, dishonored you. And even though that's not what hurt her the most, what hurt the most was bringing home that other kid, because, I mean, childbirth is kind of a bitch, I think it's a big deal to carry like a watermelon in your stomach for nine months growing and then like push them out and have, you know, another one show up that you didn't put the work in on. And all of a sudden you have to just love it like your own. Uh, Especially when the the mortality rate was so high for childbirth. Yeah, exactly. Kind of shitty. When uh, birthing, I mean, Brienne even says, you know, there are no songs for ladies that die in bed of childbirth. That's like the bravest bed to die in. I mean... And funnily enough, we have, you know, what, like three, four moms from the very beginning of the series were introduced at that died in childbirth or, you know, died in relation to that. So we'll get into more of that for sure with Catalan. But I am excited for our, her arc coming up. We I don't think we're going to spoil quite yet. Soon enough, we're going to say who we are doing next for chapters. We did kind of drop a very subtle hint last episode toward the beginning of the episode so if you do go back if you uh listen to that episode recently and want to think on it if you hear it let us know good catch if you catch it so far uh one person has caught that one person okay and finally holly brings up this really interesting and great point of i also have a theory that george r martin purposefully uses the word other slash others in place of alternative words to keep up the tension that they are the real threat. He even has the common curse, the others take you, in his world. What do you ladies think? So, other lady here, what do you think? Thanks, other lady. Um, <laughs> I, I do like that idea. I don't really think of it that often, that it's a casual reminder of the incoming threat, but... I don't really per se feel like it's solely used as a tension driver for all of the series. I think it's definitely a nod toward that, but also it's more of a historical peculiarity or expletive, referencing something from, you know, 8,000 years ago that's seen as a hyperbolic idiom in language, can like conferred to like, you're looking at a story old Nan would tell. So the, it's kind of like a 
like a silly expletive in my opinion, but I do like that it's casually bringing them up and keeping them relevant. Mm -hmm. So I could see a point toward that. Yeah, I think that in in situations like that expletive of like the others take you, that's definitely reminding you, of course, of that tension in the background um, and creates that sense of irony uh, as the story goes. But I think that in terms of other situations, a that was unintentional. Sometimes that's just the word that's there. But I also think that it could be worth remembering that a lot there are a lot of layers of things that are going on when we talk about the threat of the others and how they're positioned as the villain and even how they are called the others. Uh, there's a lot going on here, I think, with George R. R. Martin maybe sort of dancing around this idea of social othering, that philosophical concept of it, more of the social concept of it, where you view something as something, someone, as different and exclude them, which positions anyone who, is, who isn't the other, who inhabits what is seen as the norm or the default in that place of power. It positions them as more powerful than what's the other in terms of that cultural aspect. And I think this is going to come into play a lot more as the story progresses, like as with the others and their invasion, in some ways being seen as a mirror or playing thematically with that idea of a cultural other when Danny invades Westeros with her associate army, with these Dothraki and these Unsullied that many people are unfamiliar with. So I think that rather than it just being uh, the icy others that are the real threat, it's it's that threat that we see in general, or that threat of exclusion and othering that people tend to become prone to. Yeah. So thank you for that email, Holly. Thank you for listening. This was really great and fun to like think about and respond to. So we appreciate it. We'll get into it in a minute, but we've got some opinions about these chapters. Uh, we're kind of sitting here screwing around because we would rather talk about Netflix. If you listen to episode three, you may recall we were discussing uh, how Ned just wanted to go home and Netflix and chill. And I can't recall who said it, but someone on Twitter combined it for us real easy and said, you mean he wanted to Netflix and chill? And it spurred... <laughs> It spurred so much fun conversation. Love it. Holly at Hunt Pants uh, gave us a good one. We asked basically what would he be watching, you know, if he was Netflixing and chilling. And Holly gave us a series of unfortunate events. If you haven't watched it or read it, uh, the newest Netflix series on it is amazing. They just put out season two, but the books are really a great read. And it's just about this family of orphans that goes through hell, constant hell. But I loved that. I had to laugh because, yes, Ned's story is a series of unfortunate events. Absolutely. I also want to qualify that I think this is a different Holly from the one we were speaking to, speaking about earlier. Another great suggestion comes from Happy Hour with Tyrion, who said that Ned should be watching House of Cards in the West Wing. And then you got to figure it out, Ned. Life's not a fairy tale. And I just think that would be so funny if Ned were taking social cues, or not social cues, political cues from House of Cards in the West Wing. Maybe he should also watch Veep. I think, he should, I think we should throw Veep in there too. You gotta have some levity. And sometimes people just accidentally, <laughs> from what I've heard, apparently 
I've heard that. I have heard Deep that. Deep is also. in many ways also very accurate. <laughs> I love that. It made me think a lot too. Life's not a fairy tale, Ned. Huh? You wonder where Sansa got it from, guys. We also got a lot of suggestions for Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to uh, credit that to one person because we got it a handful of times. Hey. And I do think he probably would, which is a little, little sense of irony. But... I'm just mad that I like that didn't even pop into my head at first. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> and finally, Ned Stark himself, user Eddard Stark underscore one, uh, suggested that Ned would be into watching This Is Us. I've heard this is a really great show. I haven't seen it I yet. I hear it makes people cry. I would be into it. Yeah, like, it depends on the cries. Oh no, I love a good cry. Me too. It just like depends on what's making me cry. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we we started off with Ned, you know, because we wanted to cry. Hey, this episode's not so bad, but next episode, my friend, is going to be a big Yeah, that's true. And a half. Absolutely. Cry fest. Before we jump into our lightning round of what we missed, which is what we've been doing the last few episodes to connect you to the chapters in between Ned's chapters briefly, we wanted to kind of chat about this episode like I said, we've been screwing around for a bit here, just reading stuff, because, man, it was a hard couple chapters to write and think about on. I mean, it's just kind of bland. There's the, this. It's hard when you get to the very middle of Ned's investigative arc. It's uh, a little bland. It's a lot of setup and clues. Yeah, it's a it. And I think it's definitely needed in that it's sort of that slower pace before things start picking up. You know, it's a it's not a calm before the storm, but it's it, it's absolutely building that tension as things start coming to a head later on in the series, um, later on in the story. Absolutely. Like next episode, we'll start off the calm before the storm and the end of the next episode we do is shit hit the fan. You know, speaking of episodes, like, let's say you're, like, watching a TV show, you know, some before you got to juxtapose those high tension moments with those lower tension ones. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on in these chapters. It's quite before the storm. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the Ned roller coaster. Well, I guess saying that, uh, I feel better now that we got that off our chest. So, you know, we're not trying to cheat you. On this episode, there is some meat to get to. We will get to it, I promise. But for now, we're going to start off with our What We Missed lightning round. Between Eddard 5 and Eddard 6, we only have one chapter, which is John 4, where John continues to build rapport with some of the other members of the Night's Watch when a new boy comes to join the Brotherhood. It's Zoe Deschanel. It's Samuel Tarly, <laughs> and he is unlike any other boy the recruits have met with all of his admissions of being craven. But John gets to know the new kid and sees that he has his own brand of courage and brings him into the fold. In Ned 6, the events surrounding the death of John Aaron become more curious before Ned begins to piece things together. He learns John Aaron worked together with Stannis Baratheon, who has mysteriously fled to Dragonstone. To learn more about what the two men sought, Ned Stark pays a visit to a smith named Tobo Mott, where he meets a striking boy with a resemblance akin to someone we know. The way this chapter opens up is with Ned in the small council talking with Jano Slim, everyone's favorite knight, about how there's been like a lot of increase in crime 
because of the upcoming tourney. And I, I just think this is an interesting way to talk about the issues that are coming up with the tourney planning. And it, I don't know, don't you feel that it's kind of like reminiscent of how people report an increase in crime around major sporting events like the Super Bowl and the World Cup, especially because like George R. R. Martin is really into football and sports. Oh, absolutely. They say that there was a drowning, a tavern riot, three knife fights, a rape, two fires, robberies, beyond count, a drunken horse race down the street of the sisters. And like the worst part of all of this is you only have to really change maybe four words in the sentence I just said to make it match up with modern day. There was also a woman's head found in a fountain and no one knows who the woman is. Like that's just a little wild. They get a little wild in the city of King's Landing. Yeah, I guess some of those words would be like, what, the tavern riot? I could still see there being three knife fights. <laughs> IRL. I mean, it could happen. And to uh, react to all of this and take care of all this crime, Jano Slint requests more men for the City Watch to help keep the city intact. So Ned says that, yeah, here, go uh, hire 50 watchmen forces Littlefinger to deal with all of the money parts. Uh, Littlefinger is like, uh, I don't know where I'm getting this money from. Ned insists that if Littlefinger found money for the champion's purse, he should be able to find some coppers to keep the king's peace, which is significantly cheaper. Cheaper, also more important. And, you know, Ned is not here to make friends. He ain't here to play the Game of Thrones. He is here, I guess, to try and order people around and, yeah, not make friends. As a gesture of goodwill and to show his own commitment to this, Ned also loans Slint 20 of his household guard. You know, every every successful endeavor needs 20 good men. <laughs> 20 good men. I do think it's important that Ned, like, loaned his own personal men for this. It's a sign of good faith. It's Ned showing that he can be a just ruler and helpful and you know, looking for goodwill. And it's very unfortunate because we know that Ned was a good man, that he could do things like this and provide good uh, counsel and how his end comes. Ned complains about the tourney because he doesn't like that it's in his name. Robert keeps insisting that Ned should feel honored and Ned is just sour about it. He hates that all this money is just being put further into the hole for them in his own name. Hysel insists that tourneys bring opportunity for glory and the lowly a respite from their woes, which we did touch a bit on in the last episode, so we won't unwind that too much. A Littlefinger says that it brings in money, full inns, bow-legged whores, which I have to interrupt that this reminds me of Salt and Peppa. Shoot, <laughs> by Salt and Peppa. You know, because the beginning's like, hey, you. No, not you. The bow-legged one. So that's how I feel about that line for Littlefinger. Thank you. That's important analysis. Um, interesting enough, though, this actually reminds me of the royal wedding this weekend. I don't know if you watched any of it. I completely hate watched some of the highlights and didn't care at all about any of it. So don't look at me. In which Chloe acts like an absolute tsundere about the royal wedding. Dude, I cried at the Stand By Me choirs singing stand by me i cried okay look let's not talk about it let's just i'm a big sap okay like she was all walking down the aisle and I was, oh god love is so beautiful anyways so back to ned when he's talking with the small council 
Renly starts laughing about and talking about a story of how Stannis had the fantastic idea once to outlaw brothels, which, as I'm sure anyone would assume, Robert did not take well to that idea (laughs) and asked if Stannis also wanted to outlaw shitting, eating, and breathing, too. Little dramatic. Uh, Yeah, a little... Not really the same. (laughs) But then Renly continues on to wonder how Stannis, with his views on, I guess, brothels and sex, somehow managed to father Shireen. He laughs about it uh, if it were like him marching to his battlefield to go do his duty. And everyone else is also laughing along with these japes, except for Ned. Ned is like... When is Stannis going to come back? Is he going to come back? I hope he comes back. (laughs) This is supposed to be a big political meeting. They're supposed to be getting important things done. I mean, this is, you know, the city pays taxes and these people are supposed to uphold the realm for them. And everybody is just making fun of Stannis having sex with his wife and making a kid. Like, that's very telling of what the, the mood, the atmosphere of these meetings is. Yeah, he's like, this is the meeting part, not the water cooler part. The water cooler part's later. But that they're the, that's it. The whole entire meeting for them yep. is water cooler. The council adjourns and Ned returns to the Tower of the Hand to his solar. He summons Jory Castle and he waits for his horse to be saddled, perusing the book John Aaron left behind, Lineages of the Great Houses by Grandmaster Malian. And I was kind of looking around just to see because I do love when you get little little specks of information from small characters like Malian, but he has literally done nothing else of note except write this stupid book. And this book has the longest real title in the universe. I just need to read it because we need to just experience this together. The lineages and histories of the great houses of the seven kingdoms with descriptions of many high lords and noble ladies and their children. I love it. I think that's, I personally just think that's actually absolutely hilarious that that's the title. And I want to say that in Grandmaster Malian's defense, like, sure, maybe he didn't do other things, but like, this is a robust yeah, tome. It is. Like, I think he's all right with the resting on this being his only big thesis thing. Yeah. You know? He's good on it being one huge book instead of eight books. Yeah. I mean, seven. Sorry. Oh. Wasn't it supposed to be five? Wasn't it supposed to be three? Pycelle did warn Ned that this book is monotonous to read, and he was not kidding. Uh, Ned is poring over it, and no one is alive, like barely anyone is alive in this book that had been born while it was written. It's very old, and I thought it was very interesting that George had some very obvious little nods and foreshadows in this page and a half of text, including there was something here, some truth buried in the brittle yellow pages. Yellow pages. Just hold that one for a second. And we don't mean the business yellow pages. We mean... We mean business and the pages business. are yellow. That's why it's <laughs> like hair. <laughs> like hair. We're, we're, we're getting to that in a second. Of course, the myth of Land the Clever, who stole gold from the sun to brighten his curly hair... This is literally George yelling at us twice in a page and a half. The Lannisters, golden, yellow, blonde, blonde Lannisters, blonde. It's kind of just screaming, but yeah, not, not, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on this in a bit. Next, Jory 
arrives and he briefs Ned on some of the interviews that he's been doing with people around the keep, including one with John Aaron's stable boy, who's like, yeah, John tipped well. Next, there's Sir Hugh of the Vale, who ends up proving arrogant and uninformative due to perhaps his new position being a knight. There's a serving girl who said that John Aaron had been reading too much. Is that a thing? Is that a thing? Um, and was gruff with his wife and concerned about his son's weaknesses. But, you know, we know he's probably concerned about some other things. And then finally, uh, we also, not finally, but we get this quote. The pot boy, now Cordwainer, had never exchanged so much as a word with Lord John, but he was full of oddments of kitchen gossip. The Lord had been quarreling with the king. The Lord only picked at his food. What's a cordwainer? <laughs> I don't know what a cordwainer is, actually. I don't even think that I've looked it up. Good. Um, we're going to find out. We're going we're gonna to learn it right now. So a cord... Ooh, okay. A cordwainer is a shoemaker who makes shoes from new leather, which can be contrasted with the cobbler's trade hmm. um, because a cobbler repairs shoes. From being a pot boy to uh, fixing okay. shoes, or making shoes, sorry, that's uh, interesting. Good for him. I mean, rising up. Hey, little finger started at the bottom, so. Something that sticks out for me in that was that the Lord only picked at his food, and maybe, we, we, we again, we have nods to this later on that I will go into more. Eliana challenges me, and we will chat about it, but maybe John Aaron did suspect poison in the end. Maybe, we don't know. Some other things that we learned that John Aaron was doing is that the Lord was sending his boy to be fostered on Dragonstone, which we should be taking as a hint, especially as we're told later in the story that Robert had wanted Sweet Robin or Robert Aaron to be fostered with Tywin, a sentiment that Liza echoes. But then we learn here that John actually says that Sweet Robin was going to be fostered at Dragonstone, which is a very small but pertinent detail that some of the information we're getting from people doesn't quite fit. Another thing that we learn is that John Aaron had taken a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds, which at first doesn't really stand out, but it makes perfect sense if you think about how John Aaron is looking a, through the histories of these families and looking at what sort of traits were passed on from from some of these noble houses. And so, you know, together with that book of marriages, this small phrase shows uh, John Aaron doing some, uh, some work in genetics, some rudimentary stuff, kind of like uh, Mendel and his pea plants, but, you know, dogs... <laughs> Which is, it, it's interesting. It's, it's, not only is he hand of the king and a politician, but kind of like a biologist. He's, he's, uh, he's, um, he's 23 and me, you know? Uh, the Lord had visited also a master armorer to commission a new suit of plate, uh, wrought all in pale silver with a blue jasper falcon and a mother of pearl moon on the breast. And on a reread, you're like, oh yeah, that's Tobo Mott. I'm going to go ahead and say it was definitely from Tobo, especially after we get through this chapter, which means John Aaron was A, not the type of man to waste his time for free for Tobo, 
and B, he didn't want to come off as suspicious for purchasing nothing from the armor he visited. The king's own brother had gone with him to choose the design, the potboy said, not Lord Renly, the other one, Lord Stannis. The potboy pretty much only provided kitchen gossip. That's all he really had, but it was just enough to give him information on who went where. Uh, he included that Lord Stannis accompanied John to meet the armorer about his elaborate new armor, and the stable boys were swearing that John Aaron was strong as heck when he went out. Like at the very end, John Aaron was strong. He went riding with Stannis. They were friendly, and Ned finds this incredibly strange because Stannis and John were always cordial to each other, but they were never quite friendly. Which, of course, no one really gets to be friendly with Stannis unless they have long copper hair and some boobies. Or, you know, if you let him cut off four of your fingers. Um, that too. But speaking of Stannis getting friendly, the stable boy claims that Stannis and John visited a brothel together. And that is like, that is wild. I cannot imagine John Aaron... Lord of the Vale and the Eerie going with Stannis to a brothel. It's like finding out your dad and your, like, dad and your uncle went to strip club and they're, like, the most non-strip club people you've ever met. Or is it like finding out that when your dad died, there was also a sex worker in his bed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot like that. Is it? Is it like that? Is this what it feels like, Tyrion? Yeah. You weigh in? Probably not, because he's yeah. Late. But except for the part where this is actually a completely different circumstance. <laughs> yeah, like they weren't fucking anyone. They yeah, they weren't. They weren't on their Vegas trip. Ned thinks it's like completely weird because Stannis is stern and has no humor, which I don't think is a hundred percent true. And we do want to just deliberate for a second. We aren't really talking much about Stannis. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, we've been kind of keeping him not uh, prominent, just because everybody does, man. Everyone talks about Stannis. We'll get to him. Yeah, there's a lot of discourse out there on Stannis, and a lot of it is really good discourse, and absolutely recommend that, you know, you keep abreast of that, but I think that we... It's just not going to be a big focal point for us until, of course, he comes to the forefront for a couple of stories, like Davos, Kat, Brienne... Not really Brienne that much in the, like with her chapters, but we'll, we'll get there. It's just not now. But his name does keep coming up, and he's ghosted on the city with no word about when he's coming back. But something that I do think is really fun about the way this chapter is put together and how it begins revealing this information and is structured is it is so important that while we were being talking earlier about how the small council meeting is kind of just gossip, it's absolutely crucial that in that meeting we are given that information that Stannis wanted to outlaw brothels because that gives us a foundation and a basis. It characterizes Stannis so that we know when we hear that Stannis and John Aaron went to go visit a brothel that it is very suspicious and something that shouldn't be thought of as them just going for funsies. The fact that Stannis keeps coming up, but he left the city with no word, Ned realizes, he even says, something must have frightened Stannis. And we get all of this exposition on Stannis, on how he withstood the year-long siege at Storm's End, surviving only on rats and boot leather and the onions that Davos, of course, snuck in. Jory even asks Ned, 
will we see Stannis? Are you going to call him back to King's Landing? And Ned says, not yet. He waits it out. He decides his next step is going to be to visit the armorer and asks for his doublet that explicitly shows he's the Lord of Winterfell and Hand of the King. Yeah, this is a moment where we don't usually see it, but Ned is flexing that power. He's putting his lord face up. He thinks back on a moment that he had with Renly, who was showing him a portrait of Marjorie, which could be hinting at, as we learn later, some of Renly's political machinations. Renly kind of, you get the feel from it from the very beginning, in my opinion. We get the one-two step on that in the next chapter. We get the hit of, ah, Renly show it to Robert. Renly's trying to push it his way. And we get a third punch where the reveal that Renly was really trying to push it to replace Cersei comes when shit hits the fan, so to speak. But Lyanna as Marjorie doesn't work. Ned and Renly discuss, and Renly goes, does it remind you of anyone? Of Lyanna, baby? Your sister, who you know better than anyone in the world? No, absolutely not. And Ned said, no way. Looks nothing like her. Marjorie has soft brown doe eyes and chestnut curls where Liana would have had a long, hard northern face with dark hair and gray eyes. It serves a lot as faded memories for all involved, and there is a lot more of that in the next chapter, too. And as a tangent, I just want to put in a plug for this movie that I really liked called uh, Le Retour de Votanguer. And it's a story of a man who goes off to war, and then he comes back like eight or nine years later. And then people are like, wait, is this really that guy who lived here? Ned wonders how come Renly was never invited on some of these rides with Stannis to the armorer. Renly not being invited on these rides, this is Ned judging who he can trust in King's Landing because as this plot keeps unfolding, he's realizing that he can't really trust anyone. Not Robert, not anything. I mean, he's reading this huge tome book that he's just like, I don't, I don't understand why I'm reading it, but I know I have to. I know I have to. He is following the footsteps of the men that he respects, Stannis and John, as leaders throughout King's Landing, trying to figure out what scared these ferocious men or what shook them off the path of honesty and honor. I also think that this chapter is showing us a lot of Ned, the way that he is presented. A lot of people try to argue that he's dumb or politically inept, which I don't agree with it all. As we've discussed in the prior episodes, he comes from a different political background. The North isn't the same as ruling the South. Ned isn't dumb for not picking up all of these puzzle pieces right away either, but I do think Ned's plot is dumbed down for the reader. It's watered down because Ned is our camera into this bubbling plot during a Game of Mm -hmm. Thrones. George not only wants us to slowly reveal this plot to Ned and only reveal it when all is too late and the wrong choices have been made, but also wants to unravel it for the reader. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a full book to peruse. Yeah, and I also just think that, like, what? The conclusion that Ned is supposed to come to is that the secret John Aaron found is that Cersei and Jaime were banging. And I just think that, like, I'm sorry, like, no matter who you are, I don't think that that's... Ned not coming to that conclusion doesn't make him dumb. It's, like, very low on the list of conclusions people would come to right away like in terms of things that people think are possible that's not usually very high they're not targaryens i mean everybody the people that were incestuous were targaryens otherwise cousins were okay but i mean anything closer and you're a targaryen that's literally what history had dictated that's what he knew you don't just 
marry your brother or sister or bang your brother or sister or have kids with them. It's not normal. It's frowned upon. The gods frowned upon. Yeah, and I mean, Ned had siblings, so he ha- knows how he feels towards those siblings and understandably assumes that other siblings feel sibling-like towards their siblings and not like not the way Cersei and Jaime feel about each other, you know? That's just, just not the obvious conclusion. <laughs> In order to get to that eventual conclusion first ned has to make his way down the street of steel where he starts to feel self-conscious about all of the informers and spies that he knows are traversing king's landing just kind of as an aside i kind of really like this this name street of steel i love the the noises and the busy and everything that shows up yeah there's so much there's a lot to really flesh this place out and it's another moment where you get to see George R. R. Martin really showcasing that world-building skill that he has. Uh, just, just as a snippet from the chapter. It begins on the west of like Fishmonger Square inside the river gate, and then it climbs all the way up to Visenya's Hill. This is a big street, all right? Which kind of also gives you a sense of how many... How many people there are within this trade? Like, it's, it's a huge city, and a lot of people a lot of different smiths who are in business because there are so many people that they're able to meet those needs and the higher up one goes the more expensive the shops are which is such a great detail and all the way at the top is the shop of tobo mutt wow that was a lot of rhyming that i didn't think was gonna happen (laughs) as ned Ned goes through this. He starts, you know, down at the bottom. He rides through all of this. It is, if I may say, lit at this point because the tourney is starting. Ah, shit. Beric Dondarrion's party appears. I really love the description we get of Beric. Dashing figure on a courser, red gold hair and a black satin cloak dusted with stars, which, of course, is showing the Lightning Lord's allegiance to the house he's betrothed to, House Dane. These chapters serve kind of as an introduction for the Brotherhood Without Banners crew before they even become a thing. Thoros and Angai both make appearances during the tourney in the next chapter, and this introduction of Beric isn't to be missed either. Back when he was whole, back when he was handsome, and back when he was young. I really can't wait for Sansa too when we do Sansa just for this reason. The contrast of these young knights then, and then eventually we'll be able to see them in other chapters now. It's so sad seeing the way their stories go. Let me uh, actually get to Tobomot's place, and Tobomot is also flexing, and he's got all of his bling on, and he's like, look at me, I'm a rich-ass armorer, because I'm good. (laughs) Very good at this. He's so good that apparently the Tyrells, the very rich family, uh, Loris buys all of his armor from Tobo, and we learn that Tobo can work with Valyrian steel. Which is totally a super small line. I'm sure it is going to come into play in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring for Gendry. That is a perfect setup for that. Yeah, absolutely. And then Tobomod talks a little bit about some of the armor that he made for Renly. This does go back to kind of what we discussed last episode about Renly's brooch being emerald and gold. Here we learn Renly's armor is green with golden antlers, which Renly has brought up the Tyrells twice already, showing the close ties between him and the Reach's most powerful house. On Twitter, Shakespeare of Thrones 
actually had commented on this and if you haven't checked her out check her out she just put a great essay about stannis and the scottish play i'm not saying it it's macbeth you can't make me say it eliana i will say it i will i will take this burden for you oh i will take i will take the bad luck for you thanks buddy if you die well i'll probably die too uh she just put out a great essay though about stannis and the m-word and uh, she said of Renly and the color green that our discussion last week of Renly, the green meaning something, even if his eyes do change, George, he also has custom green armor. Could this be a hint of his link to Highgarden, but also symbolic of his youth and immaturity, ambition, and greed? And I say absolutely. I think the ambition and greed with the gold and the green definitely surround House Terrell and Renly's ambitions concerning House Terrell. So I think that was a really great nod. Again, rega- regarding that youth and immaturity, there are some, there are some idioms in the real world where you say someone's like a little green, and that means that they are naive. They're very young, inexperienced. So I think that all of these things are kind of at work when we're talking about Renly's characterization and yeah, how he's tied to that color green, which is a strong choice, especially since. That's not within the House Baratheon colors, which means that this is something that we should be associating specifically with him. Especially because the green is consuming the gold. Uh, gold is obviously, as we know, part of Baratheon colors. However, he's wearing more green than gold now. Every single time we see him or hear about this armor, it's becoming more green than it was before. It used to be just the emerald brooch. Now, you know, suddenly this. It's slowly, bit by bit, the trials are overgrowing. Later on, when... Many people begin calling themselves kings, such as Joffrey and Stannis. You can see in some ways Renly become green with envy and try and claim some kingship himself. So I just love this point from Shakespeare of Thrones. Yes, great symbolism. Look at me, I'm a king. Yeah, go follow her on Twitter. Do it. Read that essay about the thing I can't say. It's so good. As a big lover of Shakespeare myself, also. I, I, I was really excited when that essay came out. It was really good. We might not talk as much about Stannis yet. You are jonesing for that. Go read that essay. Ned thinks about how ornamentation on armor, going back to that armor that John Aaron bought earlier, wasn't really John's style. He was a more practical man. He believed that steel was steel and that armor was meant to be worn for protection. Ned asks Tobo what Gendry and John talked about, to which he comments his age, if he was happy, and his mother, who was a blonde alehouse wench and dead. Ned closely examines Gendry, noting he looks remarkably like Robert and Chris from Skins. Yeah. Later on, Cassie. Cassie comes into the story. Stop. (laughs) Something about the way that Tobo Mott describes Gendry, I think, is really interesting. A little earlier, he says... The boy is crude as new steel and like new steel would profit from some beating. And we see this sort of language come up to describe Baratheons from another character. For Gendry to be described as new steel is similar to that language we hear from Donald Noy, where he says, Renly is copper, Stannis is iron, but Robert was true steel. So you can see how that gets inherited somewhat. And then, of course, there's this line, which is been pointed out by people a few times, but I still love it, and we're going to talk about it. Tomat says, 
You saw the boy. Such a strong boy. Those hands of his, those hands are made for hammers. It's of course a slight hint before we get the reveal. If Gendry's hands are made for hammers, it's very much also like his father, Robert, who was famous for wielding his war hammer. Ned tries to buy Gendry's helm. Like John Aaron had armor made for himself, Ned tried to give patronage also as to not seem out of place and also to show some respect for the armorer. It's kind of funny and cute in this encounter because Ned, along with trying to cover his tracks, is just trying to be like a nice, supportive person. Ned's just being a dad. And then it ends up being super awkward because Kendry's like, uh, no, I made this for me. Like a total teenager, too. Like, what a 15-year-old. No, it's mine. Yeah, it's very funny. Later on, when Ned asks about who paid for Gendry's apprenticeship, Tobomot claims that he took Gendry on for free, but Ned wrangles the truth out of him. Uh, a stranger apparently has paid twice the usual fee for Tobomot to not only take him on, but to keep silence. He was stout, round of shoulder, not so tall as you, brown beard, but there was a bit of red in it, I'll swear. He wore a rich cloak that I do remember. Heavy purple velvet, worked with silver threads. But the hood shadowed his face, and I never did see him clear. He hesitated a moment. My lord, I want no trouble. A couple things to kind of look into on that. I had like a very existential debate about this with uh, Emmett from Nauticast, poor Quentin. We were just kind of chit-chatting about some things from this moment. They haven't gotten to this chapter yet. And this is definitely most likely Varys saving an innocent, very Melisandre and Devon style. But I, I just don't like it that it is Varys, especially given that we know his future with the realm and what he wants. Yeah, I agree with that. I also kind of wonder if there's something going on here where Varys might be squirreling away some of these true Baratheon, not trueborn, but kids who are actually Robert's kids uh, to contrast with how the Lannister heirs look to prove that they were illegitimate. When the time was right, kind of keeping it as a card in his deck for Aegon, I would suppose. Also makes it interesting to me to wonder about Edric Storm, kind of, because a lot of people theorize that they are going to use Edric Storm's claim on Storm's End to kind of whatever when Aegon comes around, yada yada. I don't really love that theory. But it's interesting to think about in the future, like, what are they doing with all these Baratheons? <laughs> yeah. Ned nodded. He decided that he liked Tobo Mott, Master Armorer. If the day ever comes when Gendry would rather wield a sword than forge one, send him to me. He has the look of a warrior. Until then, you have my thanks, Master Mott, and my promise. Should I ever want a helm to frighten children, this will be the first place I visit. And of course, coincidentally enough, Gendry ends up wielding a sword and traveling with Ned Stark's daughter in the story to come. It's a great storyline, which is supposedly going to pay off more in the future. Well, most of them do, supposedly. Supposedly. How many books was Grand Maester Malian's tome again? Just, just seven, six, <laughs> eight? Five? <laughs> um, eight books? I don't know. And while we can't figure that out, Ned also still can't figure out what John Aaron wanted with the king's bastard, nor why it led to his death. 
Which, of course, there's a great sense of irony in that. What would anyone want with a king's bastard? What would anyone want with a king's bastard? <laughs> uh, 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 we're, we're talking about Jon Snow. Get it? Snow, Ned! Snow! <sighs> yeah. If Ned's saying that, and with that double entendre of it meaning Jon Snow... He's, yeah, he is like, why would anyone want that? Because he's like, I didn't fucking ask for this. And of course, from that, as the chapter closes and all the pieces start coming together, we realize that what he found at the armor was one of Robert's bastards and knowing how much Robert loves brothels, you can surmise that from this visit, what John, Aaron, and Stannis were seeking from the brothel. And no, it wasn't a quick nut. All right, so that's... Ned Six. Info dump episode. It's a lot of setup. A lot of setup. You know, lightning round of what we missed uh, in these other chapters. So in Catelyn 5, on the road back to Winterfell, Catelyn and Sir Roderick stop at an inn in the crossroads, only to have an unfortunate meeting with Tyrion Lannister that ends in his capture. But also badass. That's actually a quiet chapter, too. Like, all, it seems like a lot isn't happening. Then suddenly, boom, everything. Those last pages. Yeah, everything blows up. Uh, after Catalan 5, we have Sansa 2, one of my personal favorites from the book. Finally, the tourney of the hand has arrived. Sansa watches several tilts, including the unfortunate death of Hugh of the Vale, which may or may not be some foreshadowing for her future. On the way back to the castle, she hears Sandor Clegane's story and reassures him that his brother, Gregor Clegane, is no true knight. Which, of course, brings us to Ned Seven. Where Sir Hugh of the Vale's death came at Gregor's hand in the second joust, bringing Eddard Stark's suspicions once more to the forefront of his mind. After struggling to convince Robert against participating in the melee... With some help from Barrist and Selmy, Ned watches the tourney as promised with his daughter Sansa. After watching the Hound save Sir Loris's life, Ned retreats to his solar, where Varys informs him Robert was meant to die in the melee. Ned Seven opens with Barristan being the sole person to stand vigil for Sir Hugh of the Vale in King's Landing, as he had no one but a mother far away in the Vale. But the circumstances surrounding Sir Hugh's death do seem very suspicious. Ned wonders if his investigation was the boy's downfall. So I guess my question is, knowing what we do now about how it was actually Liza and Peter Baelish who plotted and carried out the poisoning of John Aaron, do we actually think that Hugh was killed to hide that secret of poison? Or was it just, like, hashtag just Gregor things, especially from how we see him act later in this chapter? It's hard to discern between the two. I kind of fluctuate between yes and no all the time. I'm, like, half and half on it. Because Ned wonders if he was killed by Lannister Bannerman to prevent Ned from interviewing him. And it's referenced later by Varys that Hugh's rise to power was only after Jon's death and at the Lannister's hands and that he's one of the very few that stayed behind after his death for the Lannisters. But it wouldn't make sense, like you said. So it could just be just Gregor things, but it also could be 
I don't know. I think it could just be just regular things. What do you think? It just seems to me like I don't know. I I can't decide. Yeah, like you, I can't decide. Like maybe it was a conspiracy, but like it would be kind of funny. Like in that, it's one of those super unfortunate coincidences for a obviously Sergio the Veil, but b for Ned that it just feeds into that confirmation bias and continues to build those suspicions about the Lannisters when it's just like Gregor being Gregor. Yeah, it might be Ned's paranoia just building. Another thing I do think is important about it is that it could just be Gregor being Gregor, and it could be Sir Hugh is an up-jump squire stable boy, which also has nods to another certain from the Vale up-jump squire mm. that we see in the story. And I do think, not to give some spoilery ideas, but some speculation for the Winds of Winter, I am a very strong believer that Harold Harding is going to die in the tournament. What? He is, you don't think he's going to yeah. end up with Sansa? <laughs> Harry the red and blue herring hair dying is literally spelled in his name. Har. <laughs> Rigor mortis. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea. I, I, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I haven't thought about that, but yeah. I like that. Sir Hugh dies bloody in a tourney. Well... Yeah. Regarding the tourney, Ned Stark is not so pleased, and he says, especially in reaction to the death of Sir Hugh, um, war should not be a game. Which I think is another big facet as to why he dislikes these tourneys so much on top of the cost and that he thinks it's frivolous. Because he, of course, was in some wars, and to him, the cost of them, it, it wasn't a game. Sir Hugh had some very fancy armor, uh, very, very fancy, that was forged, especially for the tourney, and Barristan doesn't even know if Hugh had finished paying for it, which Ned, of course, replies, oh, he paid for it, buddy. Ah. Um, Ned orders the Silent Sisters to send the armor to his mother, and that Ned will finish paying off the armor if it is not already paid for. Uh, and this is, of course... The armor was forged more than likely by Tobo Mott. We can all guess because it was very intricately laid out. Barristan informs Ned that Robert is really excited and still intends to fight in the melee, which Ned already knows, and it kept him up all night because he was like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. Barristan, though, suggests that Robert may forget as... Drunken words are often forgotten in the morning. A phenomenon I am incredibly familiar Same. with. And unfortunately, Ned insists that Robert's going to remember. Fast forward to the pavilion. Robert is raging at his squires, Tyrek and Lance Lannister. More like Tyrek Lannister, am I right? He is also already drunk, even though it's morning. Don't judge, by the way. I feel like that's very judgmental. Uh, he complains that his squires cannot put his armor on properly. And he, like, throws a hissy fit about it. Like, it's like, why ah, you guys can't even do this right. Blah, blah, blah. And Ned, like, just is flat out like, Robert, it's not their fault you got fat, buddy. Which is actually very reminiscent of Cersei later on in A Feast for Crows bitching at her washerwoman for shrinking her clothes. 
although we know she was just getting fat from drinking wine, or if you're a Cersei's pregnant believer, then it's from her getting prego, I guess, but I'm a wine believer because that shit's got sugar. You will get fat if you drink a lot of wine. I think there's also something interesting there in that how they each react to it because Cersei's like these washerwomen are shrinking my clothes, but when Ned tells Robert, Robert, you got fat, he just laughs and absolutely he's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I- it shows a lot of the contrast between the two characters and shows like Cersei is a much crueler Robert Baratheon. Cersei is Robert as a ruler only if you took only cruel parts and made them. Robert then sends the squires to go get him a breastplate stretcher from Aaron Santagar, <laughs> which elicits even more laughter, uh, including with Barristan. And Ned smiles because they all know that this is not a real thing. But Ned's also concerned and notes that there are too many Lannisters surrounding Robert after asking if the squires are House Lannister. Which, of course, Ned takes a note on their looks. Blonde curls, emerald eyes. Again, we're getting told, blonde curls, emerald eyes. Ned asks about the words that were exchanged between Cersei and Robert the night before because it is common gossip now known everywhere that they got in a huge fight. Robert complains about Cersei's audacity in questioning the king, saying that Lyanna would never have done such a thing. And Ned insists that Robert did not know Lyanna. You never knew Lyanna as I did, Robert, Ned told him. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. She would have told you that you have no business in the melee. This is an important moment to talk about Liana and what she wanted, and also leads in, especially before our next episode, where we will get a little more exposition of what could possibly have happened with Liana. I mean, as a viewer, as a reader, we all don't know right now, we have to say. Although, we know. We all know. We all know what happened. At least most of it. We know that Rhaegar and Liana port and made Jon Snow, and that she did not love Robert Baratheon, and she did love Rhaegar. I mean, you're, you don't die in a tower with roses from your rapist, generally. Yeah. At least not in a fiction fantasy story that's not normal. Yeah, it sounds like it could have been a little consensual. Liana, as we know later on from Bran's chapters with the Night of the Laughing Tree story, definitely had iron underneath, and as we know from the Wolfblood Arya chapter, she would have had a sword had their father allowed it. Uh, and she even told Ned once, as we come to hear, that, you know, Robert had fathered kids already and she wasn't about that. And that, you know, he would never stay to one bed. I believe that comes up actually in our next episode. And he remembers that later on, that Liana is just a ghost of a memory to Robert that he puts, again, as we've said, on a literal pedestal and enforces what he misses and what he wanted into a person. And we talk about that a little, I guess, in our first episode, but we're definitely going to dive into that more. And another character that we're also going to eventually talk about a little more is Sir Barristan. We'll be getting to him eventually. In this chapter, we're reminded that he does, in fact, sit also on the small council. He advises Robert, we see him advising the king, and tells him it would not be kingly to participate in the melee, which hurts Robert's pride. Barristan and Ned tell him that he would only win because he was a king and no one's going to actually 
try and touch you, no one would feel comfortable going after the king, and that any victory would be in some ways unmerited. I think this is a really complex scene and moment, especially as it plays out right after, because Barristan is highlighting these issues of power, and it comes to the forefront when Robert suddenly decides to use that power. Robert's pride is hurt when he sees how kingship and that power keeps him from the things that he actually wants, how power, political power, has sucked the joy out of fighting that was some, so big for him. So in retaliation, he uses that power over those who are close to him. He orders Bearston to leave the room. Then he orders Ned to stay. He then commands Ned to drink. He says that, your king says drink. And then he tells them what they're going to converse about. There's a lot, I think, going on there about what this has done for Robert and how he feels in some ways trapped by that power. Especially because Robert, as we're about to dive into, kind of is just a puppet ruler. I mean, there are other people pulling the strings behind him. So Robert takes and controls what he can control, which is that his subjects around him, like you said, ordering and commanding them to do things. That is all he can control, really. Yeah. Robert admits he never wanted to marry after winning the Iron Throne and that it should have fallen to Ned or John, although Ned reminds him that Robert had the best claim because he had an actual claim where they do not. And it's interesting because this is once more showing that Robert realizes he is not the rightful ruler on the throne. He's not just enough for this throne. He's not doing the realm any good. He is not uh, ruling the realm properly. And he admits that basically by saying that he's not blind. Robert is under there, as Ned noticed in the last chapter, too, that there is Robert under there. And we're about to see the iron underneath melt away a little bit with Robert. This part grates on me a little just because Robert's all like, I didn't really want this. It should have been you or John. But we hear those same lines from Ned in a cat chapter where he goes this wasn't meant for me all of this was meant for brandon winterfell you everything and it's like ned didn't fucking want this either but here he is being a lord doing his job and ruling the north and being just and doing the things that are expected of him because he's like being a fucking adult you know he's not like i want to run away and he's not like i let, let's just leave you know, that's what Robert wants. And maybe, sure, that means that Robert accepts and understands that he's just not living up to what he should be. But I think that, how much did he even try, considering? I think he's swimming in a lot of regret because he did. Yeah, for him to be like, it should have been you or John. It's like, well, neither of them, maybe John did, but Ned didn't expect or want this either. John Aaron, uh, we learn, arranged the Cersei marriage, the marriage to the Lannisters, and Robert says he was a fool for doing so. Cersei, of course, as we know, is beautiful but cold, and Robert agreed mostly for wealth and for Tywin's power if the Targaryens ever rose back up against him. Robert then shows some humility and starts becoming the man that Ned has hoped that he is and apologizes for the direwolf lady's death. And admits that he is pretty sure that Joffrey lied. And coming back to what we were talking about earlier, he dreams of giving up his crown to be a sellsword in the free cities. But 
what's stopping him I, and maybe this is kind of responsible i don't know is the thought of joffrey being on the throne with cersei controlling him and that's what keeps him from giving up it's all he can control these are the only variables that robert can control i mean the mistakes have been made you know there's nothing else for him to do but it is too little too late unfortunately i don't think ned takes it that way through this conversation ned leaves this all of this kind of feeling hopeful uh but it's also like Robert, you're old and fat now. Like you're not, you're not twenty. You can't go off to the free cities and brandish your sword or your hammer. Also, things that came to mind that song by JoJo. You know, it's just too little to live. Classic. Not as good as Leave Get Out though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that one's. Ab- I can play that on guitar. Awesome. Oh my god! Play it for you sometime. Yeah, that's our exclusive content. I don't know if this is actually anything but Robert talking about wanting to be a sellsword king uh, across the narrow sea kind of reminds me of Fagon a little or Aegon that we see later on in dance who while he himself isn't necessarily a sellsword gets the support of the sellsword company the golden company and of course is a king who raised across the narrow sea so just kind of wondering if that's something, a nod there. Maybe just a little nod, if it was incidental or not. We don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know that this Golden Company or, like, the Blackfires were necessarily conceived yet at that point, but it, it's fun to think of. Absolutely. It's fun to find these little nods throughout the story. Robert asks Ned, how could I have made a son like Joffrey? Which we all kind of... You didn't. You didn't do it, son. He's not your son, son. Ned hollowly responds that Joffrey is just a boy, and John Aaron often found Robert to be a lot to handle as a child, too. Which Robert does agree. He's like, okay, well, I turned out to be all right. You know, a good king. And Ned straight up does not respond. Ned just is real quiet. And Robert is like, you you could at least say I'm like better than the Mad King, dude. Like, come on. Come on. And... Robert kind of finds this funny that Ned isn't willing to appease Robert. And Robert says, you never could lie for love nor honor. And I'm just like, (laughs) what is honor compared to a horse? (laughs) Yeah, but it's funny because this reputation of Ned's, that idea that you never could lie for love nor honor is so crucial to why the ruse that he pulls of hiding John for so many years is so effective. He only could lie for love. And he only could lie, do a lie that completely dishonored him for love. Ned admits that there's truth in that, and that then Robert insists that they have many years yet to set things right and make him a good ruler. I believe he says that the singers will sing songs of their reign together, which is very sad because we all know that's not a thing that happens. They could they could still sing songs later on. But Robert changes the subject and asks who Ned thinks is going to win the joust. Uh, he talks 
again, going back to the looming presence of the Tyrells who are growing in the story, he tells Ned that the Knight of Flowers is a son that anyone could be proud of. And about the story of Loris unhorsing Jamie in the last tourney, which is something that comes up a few times in this in this chapter, uh, constantly reminding you about the dagger and how it supposedly changed hands because of Jamie being unhorsed. Then he mentions Renly again, bringing up Loris's really cute, lovely 14-year-old sister Marjorie. And this is follow-up from last chapter. George introduced the idea last chapter, and now its payoff begins to play. When Robert is interested in the girl in the locket, it shows that he did not know or love Liana, something repeated in the last chapter with the melee. Uh, so it's just a consistent theme, especially considering, as I described earlier, that Liana and Marjorie would not have looked the same whatsoever. The idea of sending over locket or paintings in general to other nobles uh, to get them interested in marriage is also just kind of funny because it is actually typical of what happened in real history. People would send other nobles' portraits to pique interest when Philip II of Spain, for example, sought a marriage with Mary I of England, uh, they sent over a portrait to her to show him that to show to show Mary that Philip was indeed very studly. While they break their fast, they talk about when they were boys in the Vale. Robert is eating an orange and reminiscing of a story when they were younger, and Robert had started a rotting fruit fight in the halls, which brings a lot more fruit symbolism to the story once more. Uh, fruit symbolism of rotting oranges especially rears its head once we join up in Dorne in A Feast for Crows, where the overripe blood oranges begin to drop and plop on the ground, showing Doran has waited too long to execute his plans, much like Robert. Yeah, that Robert is now thinking that he wants to be a good king. Just, again, too little, too late. Ned smiles, realizing that he is now finally speaking to the man he once knew. And feels that if he can just prove his accusations, Robert will listen, listen to Ned. This hope causes Ned to feel that his smiles are coming more easily, and even the food begins to taste better as Ned thinks about the downfall of the Lannisters. Ned arrives at the tourney finally, sitting next to his daughter Sansa, which uh, he had promised her that he would come to this day of the tourney with her because he had not joined her the previous days, and she was very focused on coming to the tourney. This was Sansa, you know, as a lady of the court, wanting to go to the courtly things that she was expected to be at, and Ned even says, you know, he does not really want her there. I believe that might be in her chapters even, I don't think it was in this chapter, but he kind of said, this is a gruesome thing for a young lady to sit through. I don't know how I feel about you going to this. Littlefinger bets against the Hound in the first joust, saying some clever crap, because, you know, that's Littlefinger's character. A dog will not bite the hand that feeds it. Which is also very interesting because maybe a wolf would bite the hand that feeds it, as Eliana and I discussed actually before this, especially regarding Littlefinger. And it also makes me think of possible throne room exposition coming from Sandor, possibly to Sansa in the future about Littlefinger betraying her dad which we will get to, obviously, in the next few chapters. Uh, so something to think about for the future, that the only person in that throne room that probably could tell Sansa about that betrayal is Sandor. I'm just going to throw something out there that 
I was thinking about uh, when you're talking about Sansa watching this gruesome affair at the tourney. It makes her feel more Stark-like, especially in conjunction with that very first brand chapter of how you must not look away, especially if you're witnessing that beheading. And she doesn't. Jane Poole is put to tears when Hugh of the Vale is killed, but Sansa does not. She maintains watching and she does not get upset and she keeps her composure. Yeah. And she does feel tears, of course, much later on at the, at the end of Ned's story, but she is the one who witnesses it. Littlefinger loses a bet, uh, loses that bet when the Hound bests Jamie. So that's bringing up again who's betting on who, especially who's betting on Jamie when it's in the context of the knife that was used in this attempt on Bran's life. Uh, also, does Jamie... Jamie just doesn't seem like he's very... He, it seems like he loses these jousts a lot, doesn't it? Which, later on, he gives us the kind of exposition in one of his chapters that, you know, you have to have good horsemanship to be good in the jousts. Uh, that's, like, very important. He actually tells us this, I want to say, in one of his chapters or Brienne's chapters. So it's interesting to hear this because he's just not really good at the tourney, I feel like, at, at the jousts, at the tilts. Yeah, which is fair. We see a couple of times some people say that, oh yes, uh, my sibling's the better lance and I'm the better sword, and Jamie's just more of a sword than the lance person. Mm-hmm. When this uh, match goes down the way it does, Sansa tells Ned that she knew the Hound would win, and yeah, Littlefinger asks her if she also knows who will win the second match. Get a job, Littlefinger. Which uh, then Renly provides another very useful clue. He says that he wishes Tyrion were there and that he would have won more because Tyrion always bets on Jaime, which means that he wouldn't have lost or he wouldn't have won that knife from Jaime losing because, yeah, Tyrion always bets on his brother. And Ned, unfortunately, misses... This clue. And Renly says it even, like, right there. And, like, Littlefinger's right there. And Littlefinger's probably just, like, laughing inside himself. He probably is for a second, like, oh, God, did he notice? And he's like, ah, what an idiot he didn't notice. And, (laughs) yeah. Jamie is let off the field with a mangled helm. And Sir Gregor takes his position. And Ned remarks that he is the biggest man he has ever seen, including Hodor, including Robert. Ned recalls Gregor's awful reputation, which of course we will go over briefly because it's horrible. He dashed the skull of Aegon Targaryen against the wall, and he commonly was known to boast the rape and murder of Elia Martell during the sack of King's Landing. Rumors of weird circumstances surround the deaths of his two wives, his sister, his father, and his brother's face, obviously. His sister would have died between 272 and 282 AC, And Sandor would have been burnt somewhere around 278 to 279 AC. And Gregor would have been knighted in 281. And his dad died in 282 in a hunting accident, quote unquote, which is not the first hunting accident we see to kill off someone who is the lord or the ruler of a keep. Uh, We obviously will see this later on in this book. Sandor would have left to join House Lannister immediately after his dad died in 282 to avoid being murdered and by his brother to be one of the family members murdered, which is most of them. 
And that's kind of where we came. Sandor was at the Sack of King's Landing outside, while Gregor was on the inside. As for Gregor Clegane's opponent, Loris Tyrell, he is slim and armored in his fancy, shiny, pretty, intricate, beautiful, awesome, amazing armor. Made by Tobomot, of course. Yeah. And a cape of woven flowers, which is... That doesn't sound very sensible to me. It doesn't, but also... It does sound pretty fly. <laughs> like Yeah, you gotta admit, he had some style. Yeah. Like, a cape of woven flowers. Alright, alright. And Sansa compares the two contestants, then asks her father to ensure that Loris does not get hurt. She is wearing her rose that Loris gave her, uh, and begging her father to make sure that he does not get hurt to protect him. So Sansa is wearing a rose and begging her father to protect him. Just to, just to put that out there. Yeah, you know, roses. Roses begging people not to hurt other people. You know, uh, the Sounds like no one I've ever heard of before. Promise me, Ned. Promise me. Blue petals. Okay. <laughs> Ned assures her, though, that these lances are designed to break so that no one is injured. While, of course, thinking of Sir Hugh. And it's also another line to remind kind of us that dad can't always protect you. Look at Lady. I mean, Ned isn't always going to be around to protect you. That's kind of the thought process here, as he tells her, oh, he'll be fine. And then, of course, he thinks immediately of how Sir Hugh died. As we get this introduction to Gregor Clegane and his very clear characterization of being a very large man, he becomes the Goliath of this story. He becomes this horrible giant that must be slain. But our expectations of what goes down are overturned every way. Every David that we see Goliath go up against loses. And it's likely that the story the story is going to play out like this quite a few more times until, you know, we get just the right David. Um, and George will also be putting, likely, his own twists on this classic tale. We move on to Gregor unable to control his horse, while Loris shows great horsemanship when the joust begins. Clegane's mount gallops hard and unsteady where Loris's mare stays smooth. Loris strikes perfectly with an unbroken lance and Gregor is in a rage. He roars for his sword to be brought to him and he beheads his horse with a single cut nearly and advances towards the Knight of Flowers, sending him to the ground with one blow. He is about to kill him when, of course, the hound jumps in, remaining defensive to Gregor's blows. The king's voice comes over the crowd, again uh, establishing... He's commanding. The hound drops to his knee, and Gregor finally comes to his senses and storms off, not dropping to the knee at all. Earlier in this episode, we established how Robert's power becomes something that comes to the forefront, and here you get to actually watch him use that power. This is the first time we see Robert not skirting his duties or power, too. Uh, the man who's missed every small council meeting finally found his booming voice in this chapter in general. Sir Loris forfeits the championship to Sandor, and there is no final joust. The Hound wins, just as Sansa predicted. 40,000 dragons go to the winner. The first time Sandor has ever won anything in his life, beside his burnt face. He wins the love of the commons because the good 
people love a good underdog story. I do mean it in earnest, especially as I was talking earlier about like that David and Goliath stuff. That's that's the classic underdog story, and you can definitely see that the Hound's gonna it's gonna go down. So, something's gonna happen. It reminds me a lot of the Hedge Knight. Of you know, are there no true knights? You know, mm-hmm. among you, it reminds me of Dunk helping Tanzel when he saw injustice done. The Hound saw Gregor bullying yet another boy, just like he had been bullied. Uh, mm-hmm. Gregor going after another boy to kill him, just as I'm sure Gregor could have killed him if he had held him longer there. By the time Sandor meets his brother again in this story, he will not be his brother anymore. He will be the shell of a monster and a mad dog. So I don't think a lot of people give the Clegainbull argument. Clegainbull is tired. I think mercy killing his brother is wired, which we'll get into later on in Sansa and Arya's chapters, as those are the ones that we really truly get to characterize Sandor the most. But mercy is a very prominent theme in Sandor's story. And I do think that there is a mercy kill coming from his story. In other news, just because I like ruining people's lives. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the way Loris Tyrell thanks Sandor, I was like, but what if but what if we made a Loris and Sandor ship? I know that Sansan is uh is the popular thing, but what if we made a Loris and Sandor ship? Would that be Lorsan? Sandlor? Sandlor! 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 I did it. You can't deny it has a ring to it. Next, they head over to the archery field because there are a lot of activities that happen at attorney. And Littlefinger remarks that Sir Loras had to know that his mare was in heat and that it would disrupt Gregor's stallion. We also end up meeting a few interesting people, such as a boy named Angai, who wins an archery event. And Ned actually offers him a position in his guard, but he refuses. He's too good for that. Then we also meet Thoros of Mir, who wins a melee with his flaming sword, which lasts three hours and started with 40 people. It's a very long event. And again, this is introducing the future leaders and prominent members of the Brotherhood Without Banners and contrasting them from their more bright beginnings, I guess I would say. A dashing, handsome knight. A young archer, a fat, drunk, sot priest of R'hllor. Interesting enough that Angai refuses to join Ned's guard when eventually he does join Ned's guard. It's the Brotherhood Without Banners, which is kind of what's left of people that defected. When the list of injuries is reported, Ned is more than happy that Robert didn't participate because a lot of people got injured. At the feast that night, Ned felt extremely hopeful. Robert was in a great mood, the Lannisters weren't even around, not at the feast, none of it, and his daughters were even behaving and being sweet and just being sisterly to each other. Arya and Sansa are discussing her dancing lessons. Sansa is kind of noting about her gross bruise that she shows her on her leg, saying, oh, you must not be very good at dancing then, Arya. Ned examines Arya's bruise later on while she's practicing her one-leg standing, and he worries if Syria was being too hard on her. He recalls her walking blindfolded through the keep because Syria was teaching her to see everything with everything but her eyes. Of course, is something that happens to Arya, but actually literally when they blind her at the House of Black and White. And I'm just like, 
I don't know, is this a normal thing in Bravosi curriculum? Is this just a thing that people do in Bravos, I guess? Learn to... It strengthens the other senses, but it's, yeah, it's very weird. It's kind of interesting that he teaches her that. And of course, people have taken that and made crazy theories that, you know, he's a faceless man or whatever. Nutty stuff, which I don't agree with that. But I do wonder if we're going to get any payoff to Cereal Pharrell's plot or if that was just a nod to, like, begin her on her journey. She's been practicing spins and backflips, and Ned offers to have her lessons moved to another instructor, because this is kind of a bit queer as far as master-at-arms goes. He, you know, knows any decent master-at-arms could give her sufficient enough training, but he also knows that arguing with her is pointless, and she insists that she wants Sirio Pharrell to train her. It seems like she's getting a very robust uh, training. It, 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 some way in some ways feels like those montages from like i don't know the karate kid where you're doing like all of these other things that aren't that you think aren't related to actually fighting but turns out they are ned then returns to his solar thinking of all of these different new things that he has learned and he takes out the drag the not dragger he takes out the dagger and he wonders why anyone would ever want brand dead and He's very sure that Bran's fall has something to do with John Aaron's death, but he just can't figure out how the two come together. The hint is that they're not related. Well, kinda, kinda. They are. They are in the sense that it's about like the incest. Yeah, the fall is related, but the knife is not. The knife is just like Joffrey being right. Hashtag just Joffrey things. Jory is searching the brothels, and that is more than certain Gendry is Robert's son. He also thinks back on Edric Storm, another bastard Robert had to recognize because the mother was highborn. And then he also remembers Robert's first child in the Vale. No bastard can threaten his true-born children, though, Ned thinks, which we all know at this point to be the opposite. His bastards are more true-born than his true-borns are. Varys comes to Ned's door in disguise, unrecognizable in rough-spun model, his face disguised, which this is kind of the second kick uh, from the one-two punch with somebody coming to the armorer and paying the apprentice fee for Gendry. So if it was Varys who paid Gendry's apprentice fee, disregarding the beard and somehow they have like spirit gum back in the day to keep that crap out, I don't know. It's all uh-huh. just really like, I got it, mummers, whatever. But this second echo notches all of that in. I do kind of feel like it cheapens the taste of it, but we kind of get a reveal that Varys is a master of disguise in that moment. Varys then comes in with some juicy tidbits, such as revealing that the Lannisters had actually hoped to kill Robert during the melee. And Ned then asks, why then would Cersei forbid him from participating? Because that is the best way to make Robert do whatever she wants to forbid him from it. And he points out that she forbade him in front of many people, and it all comes back to Robert's pride. His pride is what made him want to enter so badly. Then it's his wounded pride that convinces him to sit it out. Varys reveals Cersei is actually afraid of Ned, surprisingly, which all of us are sitting here like, Ned, you big softy. But she's afraid of him. Robert would never harm Ned. 
not even if she asked him to, where Robert would kill Varys at the slightest of requests. He hates spies, units, units, eunuchs, and sneaks. When Varys talks about that, he's, he says that Robert, a most puissant warrior is our Robert, and such a manly man has little love for sneaks and spies and eunuchs. If a day should come when Cersei whispers, kill that man, ill and pain will snick my head off in a twinkling, and who will mourn poor Varys then? They bring up Illin. They talk about Cersei whispering things to Ilan Payne quite a few times in this end chapter. And while it isn't Cersei, it kind of puts the idea of Ilan Payne doing a Lannister bidding for a bit. But, you know, first of all, as soon as Varys comes, it gives Ned choices when it comes to the people that he trusts or works together with. First, uh, Ned in King's Landing was approached by Littlefinger, and he's put a lot of trust in Littlefinger. But now Varys is also making his own moves on the hand. In this conversation, Varys also discusses some of these complexities in King's Landing politics of where the loyalties of each of the small council's members lie. Ned says that Robert must have someone that he can trust in King's Landing. He says, like, the King's Guard, which Varys calls a paper shield, a term that's going to come up again later uh, in Ned's storyline. And I think that this chapter shows a lot about Ned's understanding of how power works and the way that he thinks politics works. In this aspect, I think that Ned is actually very much like Sansa. He's putting a lot of faith in powerful people in the way that the current like formal structure is set up. Like how he has all this hope that I just have to give Robert this proof. Uh, the way that or the way that Sansa later believes that she can trust uh, Cersei. Ned and Sansa both put a lot of faith in the idea of people in power being righteous. But they also put too much faith in the power of this position and their authority. This contrasts with the way that Littlefinger and Varys work when we see them both coming up in this exact chapter. While Ned sort of relies on that status quo and the formal societal power structure as a means for justice and to make things right. He just keeps thinking that if he can get the proof that he needs and show it to Robert about the Lannisters being guilty, then he can use Robert's authority as king, Robert's power that we've seen a couple times in this chapter, to bring those evildoers to justice. But the problem is that he keeps trying to play this game by old rules, by using just the rules and the power that he can see, whereas Littlefinger and Varys make their own power. They're using knowledge, they're withholding it, and they're making plays, and they're changing up, up what knowledge means. And in that way, they're creating their own rules for this game, as is pretty much everyone else in King's Landing. You have to make your own power and make your own rules in order to win the Game of Thrones. You can't rely on a system that denotes it. We see Varys creating this knowledge with his little birds by chopping their tongues out and getting them to hide in walls and taking information from them. And that is his own web of knowledge that he spins 
we have Littlefinger rising from nothing and creating money out of thin air for things. And the whole idea, a notion of honor, an honor guard or a king's guard or that paper shield was really killed when Jamie Lannister killed Aerys II. I mean, that was, it's all up in the air then. There's no rules that Jamie Lannister killed the king. Whether or not it was good or bad, not judging the act, whether or not it was honorable, but Jamie forsake his vow and he is still in a member of the Kingsguard. So that means that, he, you know, there's no rules anymore. That's it. Absolutely. Finally, Ned summons the nerve to ask the burning question of Varys. How did John Aaron die? Who poisoned him? And we learn that it's a poison called the Tears of Lys. Which, of course, as we've said in past episodes, Tears of Lys totally hint towards Liza Aaron between the name and, of course, later Alyssa's Tears. Uh, a Liza's Tears. I begged Lord Aaron to use a taster. In this very room, I begged him, but he would not hear of it. Only one who was less than a man would even think of such a thing, he told me. Which, again, is hinting at it not being a man that poisoned him. So, let's just throw this out there. With Varys saying that I begged Lord Aaron to use a taster. And... The idea that, I don't know, doesn't this seem counterintuitive to that idea earlier where that John Aaron suspected suspected that he could be poisoned that you were talking about earlier with him pushing his feet you around? You know, I would say it could. However, I feel like they were speaking of his last days. And as we know of Ned's last few days before he is locked up and then brought to have his head chopped off, he grew increasingly paranoid he, as he unraveled each plot thread and uh, figured it all out. I mean, he was looking left and right over his back. And I think that towards the end, John Aaron probably was the last few days, you know, picking at his food going, maybe I shouldn't eat this, especially after the idea of someone trying to poison him was put in his head by Varys. Fair. Fair. That could definitely be it. And, and he maybe like regrets that... He's like, damn, maybe I do need to start investing in a in a taste tester. But of course, too little, too late. The other news is we're never going to find out, so. Lol. Because <laughs> he's dead. Finally, Varys ends this chapter with his super on ominous warning of Ned's like, oh, why did he die? And then Varys is like, asking questions. And... Bum, bum, bum. So dramatic. You can just see the the credits rolling for before the next episode, the next chapter. Speaking of the next chapters, I am really excited for our next episode, Eliana. Oh my gosh, I've been waiting for it. Uh, it's lit in our next episode. Can you tell me what happens in Eddard 8? First, in Eddard 8, after Ned being like super jazzed about Robert and stuff, Ned and Robert... Oh, wait, no, I'm not using the word jazz. Okay, after Ned and Robert, after Ned feeling, like, super hopeful about Robert, then Ned and Robert clash over the presented plot to kill Daenerys Targaryen. When the council sides with Robert, Ned throws his badge upon the table and resigns in protest. 
As he makes plans to return to Winterfell with his daughters, Littlefinger interrupts bringing Ned the identity of the brothel John Aaron and Stannis Baratheon visited. And of course, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book, uh, I would rank it probably Eddard 9 and Eddard 15 are my two favorite Ned chapters in ever, obviously. So <laughs> I guess I was going to say in this book, but that wouldn't work. Uh, Eddard 9. Ned is led to the brothel John Aaron visited by none other than Judas Peter Baelish. He speaks to a sex worker whose daughter has King Robert's look. Leaving the brothel, he is ambushed by Jamie Lannister and 20 of his good men, of course. A fight breaks out in retribution for Catelyn Stark abducting Tyrion, and Jamie's men murder Ned's escort and break the hand's leg during the fight. This is, of course, a chapter where we're going to get a few Rhaegar and Lyanna nods and a lot of darker thoughts from Ned as he really descends into more of his noir part of his arc of his investigative arc. And of course, the end of the chapter is heart-wrenching, so Eliana and I will be doing our best not to sob. We're, We're gonna, gonna cry. cry. Girls gone cry. Girls gone crying. Girls gone crying. <laughs> I guess that's it. So thank you for joining us um, on this latest episode where we didn't really cry that much, um, surprisingly, uh, of Girls Gone Canon. As always, um, you can find us on Podbean and on iTunes and on Google Play. Be sure to follow us on Twitter as well. Uh, we love reading your tweets. Um, if you have any more recommendations for what you think that Sark would watch, feel free to send them our way. Uh, the, these are really fun. Let us know what you think about episodes. And of course, we have an email address. Feel free to email us some of your thoughts at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Or leave us some reviews on iTunes. Rate us. Uh, please do that. It helps us get more people looking. And also, we just love reading what you have to say. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun reviews in the last couple weeks. So please, please, please leave us some reviews and ratings. Uh, chat with us. We'd love to chat. Girls Gone Chatting. Girls Gone Chatting. <laughs> anyway, I've been Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. I've been Chloe, also known as at Lies and Arbor on the internet, and we have been Girls Gone Canon. Thanks so much, and be sure to tune in next week for Ned 8 and Ned 9.